This is Class Session 23. Since I gave the food lecture during the time slot of my Tolkien class yesterday, I had to schedule a makeup session for the Second Fellowship of the Ring class, so the crowd is smaller than usual. This was a very fun class, though. We talked about the Shire and the Ring, and I actually learned a lot from this class. Anyway, first we return to the Shire. I want to start today with basically kind of clarifying some of the things that I was that we were discussing about the Shire last time. Um, first, when we were talking about the sheltering of the Shire, especially, I didn't feel, sort of thinking about it afterwards, I didn't feel really satisfied with sort of where we ended up on that. And I'm not sure that, that my emphasis was particularly clear there. Um, because, of course, the situation with the Shire is very complicated. On the one hand, it's a very good thing that it's being sheltered, that it's certainly from the perspective of those sheltering it. It's being, we will learn as we go on, it is being actively protected. And that's a very good thing for the protectors to do. Um, the consequences of its sheltering are some of them very positive, some of them inevitably negative. And I think that Tolkien is very even-handed in how he um, he's very even-handed in how he treats that, especially at the beginning and uh, establishing the initial. Uh, situation. We're reminded, as I said last time, about the whole big versus small thing, that the the big world around the Little Shire um, and the way in which now the Shire is being, or at least certain members in, in, of the Shire, are being forced to confront that larger world is a, is a major interest, certainly, of chapters one and two, um, but really of the whole beginning. I mean, one of the things that that Gilder says in his conversation with Frodo, which is, I think, very, very, very important. Um, you know, Frodo, they're, they're talking about the danger that they're in, and, and Frodo says, I knew that danger lay ahead, of course, but I did not expect to meet it in our own shire. Can't a hobbit walk from the, river, from the water to the river in peace? But it is not your own shire, said Gilder. Others dwelt here before hobbits were, and others will dwell here again when hobbits are no more. The wide world is all about you. You can fence yourselves in, but you cannot forever fence it out. And that is clearly one of the main things that's happening here. Uh, one of the main plot dynamics of the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring is basically the breaking down of the walls. Bilbo was a solo story. He had an impact on the Shire when he returned, as is clear. I mean, the way that people talk about him, the way he's impacted his, his neighbors and his whole area. Um, you know, we see at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring that he has had an impact, goodness, even if just the impact he's had on the younger generation. Think about all the, you know, the, the, the hobbits valuing respectability and predictability and everything and compare that to the kinds of comments that Merry and Pippin just throw off. Right? You know, Mary saying, when he meets them on the road, saying things like, I see you've been having adventures, which is not quite fair without me. Like, Mary, now we have random hobbits in the Shire who feel deprived if they're left out of adventures. I mean, the world has changed. The Shire world, at least parts or members of the Shire world, have changed since Bilbo came back. But nevertheless, still Bilbo's story was about him. Primarily, him leaving the Shire, it's still going on and being its own little protective place, him thinking about it, remembering it, and having a different perspective when he returns. But it wasn't the story of the Shire. It was just the story of Bilbo. What we see here at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring is the world genuinely changing. You know, as Gilder says, you can fence yourselves in, but you can't forever fence the world out. And that's what seems to really hit Frodo. On the one hand, Bilbo was already going and experiencing big things. I mean, when Thorin and company come into Bilbo's parlor in chapter one of The Hobbit, we get some glimpse of the fact that this is a big thing, that it's a big deal, right? You know, that, uh, think of the way that it, he says things like, you know, he was none other than the great Thorin Oakenshield himself. Thorin is an immensely important dwarf, we're told. And he, he, he's got a big story. He's part of a big story. Um, but still, and of course he's going to, to find you know, Smaug, the dragon, and the lonely mountain, and that's a big deal. But of course, those big dangers and that big adventure wasn't really coming in. Bilbo felt like the world of adventure was invading his house, and it was to some extent in the person of Thorin and the dwarves. 
But Smaug wasn't invading. And one of the things that Bilbo thinks about in chapter 1 is that dragons are comfortably far off. You may remember that moment when he's listening to the dwarves' song and he experiences that brief enchantment and begins to see things from the dwarvish perspective and, and feels within himself the desire of the hearts of dwarves and to imagine himself wearing a sword instead of a walking stick. And he looks out the window and he sees the stars and he's thinking those dwarvish thoughts and picturing them like, jewel, like gems, secret gems found underground. And then he sees a little flame in the distance, and this immediately makes him think of plundering dragons descending on his hill, and then immediately he is playing Mr. Baggins of Bag End again. Um, that idea that these, of these big things actually coming into the Shire is so terrifying, it, it, just, it creates a complete disjunction in Bilbo. He's nothing like prepared for that. Frodo basically finds himself in that position. It's not just, hey, there's this huge, horrifying danger that I want you to go to. That was Bilbo's position. But, oh yeah, um, Sauron, you've heard of Sauron? You know, the Dark Lord who's tried several times to take over the world and is rising again? Yeah, uh, turns out he's looking for you. Uh, And he might come by, (laughs) or his representatives, pretty much any day. uh, Because you personally are holding in your hand right now the one thing he wants more than anything in the world. So of all of the human beings, of all of the creatures on the face of the earth, the Dark Lord is more interested in you personally at this moment and what is happening here in this parlor than anything else. That's the reality that Frodo is confronted with at the beginning, and it creates a completely different kind of situation. Um, No hunger are things safely far off. We don't have dragons invading, um, but we do... Uh, of course, get get ringwraiths invading. When Gildor tells him you can't forever fence the world out, it's already old news by that point. I mean, Frodo has already begun to see that himself. Um, but as I said, there are definitely... We see some good and bad things about the sheltering. Um, what are some examples of the negative consequences of the sheltering of the Shire that we can see in the first couple chapters of the Fellowship of the Ring. Jordan? Um, there's uh, not really strife, but more... I don't really... I don't, I can't think of a word that's quite appropriate because most of the ones I want to use are Hershey than was appropriate, but between, say, Buckland and Hobbiton, they, they both call each other queer folk. And they're like, yes. Those guys are they're pretty weird. You should have stayed here or you should have gone there or whatever. Good, I, degree, I, I agree. The, the tensions that we see within the Shire, yeah, no, it's true. Um, even, I remember there's a, there's a very conspicuous phrase uh, that Tolkien used to describe that Sam had, of course, a natural distrust. Yeah, of people who lived outside of, of you know, people who lived in other parts of the Shire. So he's, he is ill-disposed towards Farmer Maggot, both because he is... He is not likely to think well of anyone who has beaten his master however long ago. But also, there's this default, apparently in some way kind of accepted, um, sense that it's, a, you know, it's, 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 <laughs> uh, it's acceptable in some sense, or at least it's normal within the Shire for them to distrust each other. And I agree, that's, now... I'm not 100% sure to what... I think we could say that that's a consequence of the sheltering that the Shire has had. I think that the cause of that um, is probably a little bit more complicated. Um, But I agree, certainly in thinking about uh, troublesome dynamics that we see in the Shire, that's certainly certainly one. Eric? Well, because they're so isolated, they don't really recognize true danger. They'll just let one of the ring rays just ride without really realizing that he's a ring yeah, yeah. You know, that if he was riding around, you know, like one of the human kingdoms or something, they would recognize the actual danger that's present with that. Yes, good. I mean, it. they are not only comparatively helpless, but completely clueless. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I think that that's a really good point. The... the the ringwraith could not wander through the streets of Minas Tirith getting directions to the person they were going to kill. Um, in the Shire, people distrust them, but it's almost like they don't distrust 
these the black riders any more than they would distrust somebody from West Farthing. I mean, it's 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 yeah yeah. So I mean, the fact that we see even the gaffer, he's uncomfortable and he's unhappy with it, but he still gives directions to the guy, uh, you know, to where Frodo and his son have gone. Now again, that's not. I mean, he doesn't suspect that he's actually out to destroy them, but um, but but again, that's that's the point. They are uh, naive to not only a painful, but really, for them, for them, quite a dangerous degree. And I think it's important. Aaron? The first time I read Sam's excitement of going to see the elves and hoping to see the elves, I was like, oh, that's so cute. But thinking more on it, it's actually really sad because elves are a natural part of their world, and it's they're not like a rare occurrence. And he talks about it like he's going to visit another country, and he's going on vacation. And yeah. it's just so sad that something that's such that's so natural to them is so foreign to the Hobbit. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are two things here. One is that the, the appearance of the elves is getting rarer. Um, so I think there is something to the scare, like the Sam's sense of the scarcity of, of, of that experience of seeing an elf is not, I think, a complete illusion because there are fewer elves and fewer all the time. But, but at the same time, in the big picture of things, the elves are, are quite local. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, there's, there's a way in which the hobbits being that distant from elves where, you know, Ted, Sandyman, and Sam are engaged in a debate as to whether or not anyone's ever even seen one crossing the Shire. I mean, when they're that alien to Hobbit culture, it's kind of like, not in a, not in a, uh, uh, an individual basis, but on a cultural basis, like not knowing your neighbors. They live quite close to Rivendell, big picture. I mean, look at the whole map of Middle-earth. They're, 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 they're pretty close. Gildar and his people apparently are hanging out there quite a bit. Um, this is not a strange and unusual journey that brings them through. They have this you know, their little campground place set up uh, in the woody end where, where, where they take them, um, which apparently they visit quite a bit. So there is a sense in which the elves are, there are elves who live practically next door to the hobbits in the Shire, and yet they might as well be on the other side of the world. And that, I think, is uh, a really good kind of glimpse into how not just sheltered, but how inward-facing the Shire is. Back to the comment we made last time about the, you know, the, the, the maps having nothing outside the borders uh, of the Shire. That's, that's the, the, you know, that, that inward-facing world of the Shire. I mean, forget, you know, things that, I mean, they, they, they know, you know almost nothing about things that are legitimately far away, like Gondor, for instance, or Rohan, or something like that. Um, and this is, of course, one of the shocks... Uh, Involved in the idea of Sauron, who lives very far away, taking a personal interest uh, and uh, uh, in in the Shire in the way that he does. Go ahead, Jordan. Building on that, doesn't one of like the primary road to the Great Havens cut directly through the Shire? Uh, the Great Havens are the primary uh, uh, point of departure for the elves. There is, we will learn, another elf haven uh, down in the south, south of of Minas Tirith in southern Gondor. Um, there are where the elves of Lothlorien general, generally set sail. I was just thinking, it's like going to the Great Havens. Don't you usually pass through the Shire? The elves do, yes. Uh, and and there will be a moment. Yeah, I, I, I said I would stop looking at uh, making references to things we haven't read yet. But when we do get to this section, this conversation will be irrelevant. So I'm just going to say it now. Um, there will be a really conspicuous moment when uh, the fellowship arrives in Lothlorien and are talking to the elves. Uh, and there's a funny moment when uh, one of the elves is talking with the hobbits and says that he's heard of the land of the halflings and it's way out there uh, by the havens. And uh, I think it's Mary says, oh, yeah, there are, there, are, there are elf havens near the Shire. I've heard that. And he's like, he's like all proud of this, right? Oh, yeah, we're, we're right by the havens. And so the elf says, oh, excellent. Tell me of these havens as we walk. I, I've never been there, and I'd love to hear them. And then Mary has to admit, well, actually, I've never been there. In fact, 
Nobody I know has ever been there. In fact, no hobbits ever visit this amazingly famous place, which is right next door to the Shire. That's how how inward, inward focused they are. And again, one of the things... One of the reasons I wanted to come back and revisit this is that I felt like I gave too negative an impression of Hobbit culture last time. And, of course, now I'm, like, harping even more upon negative things. So perhaps I'm doing more harm than good here. But it's important to recognize the dynamics of this because Tolkien is going to use all of this stuff. Let me perhaps attempt to... to rescue myself by shifting gears. What are some positive aspects of the sheltering of the, of the Shire? Anyone? <laughs> Go ahead. Well, part of the reason they're able to stay naive is because they genuinely don't know that outside the Shire, people do do all these horrible things. Gaffer gives the directions because he just literally can't conceive of someone who, in the Shire who would want to do that kind of thing. It's the only knows about people in the Shire... He doesn't he can't conceive of someone who would actually intend to ask politely ask directions. Then, yeah, it's no bad thing to be living in a society in which those kinds of actions are so alien as to be completely off the map, right? I mean, I agree with a point that Eric made before that this is clearly it turns out to be uh, at least a disadvantageous thing for them that they are so trusting and they're so oblivious. Uh, to what's going on, but at the same time, it sure makes it an awful nice place to live. Um, yeah, yeah. Brittany? Um, on the whole, Hobbits are much happier than much anybody else Yeah, yeah. I, they, you think of, uh, think of a line from the Akalabeth. After the Numenorians start to go bad, uh, and Tolkien says they had reached the zenith of their bliss, if not yet the zenith of their power. Right? They're going to become more powerful, but they're never going to get happier. Right? They're going to get more and more miserable, even though they get more powerful. And like that, uh, you know, to try to to try to chart that, you know, sort of graph bliss versus power, you know, on different axes and sort of where you are, uh, the, the the Shire. Is is pretty low on the power index, but way high on the bliss index. There are ways in which the Shire is as idyllic a society as you can have in Middle. It's hard to get much better than that in Middle Earth, and that seems to be clearly one of the impressions that he wants to build. There's this is it's not perfect, um, and he shows it be imperfect, and he fills it with venially imperfect people, uh, like the Sackville Bagginses and, and, the, you know, and, and then the people who, who sneak around for second birthday presents and all, and all that kind of thing. But, but still, I agree, it's, it is, we can't overlook the fact that they individually and as a society are really happy. This is almost as good as it gets. Um, it's interesting that power is so low here, you know, that clearly... Great power is not required for great bliss. Now, we will learn that they're riding on the backs of other people's power, of course. Um, they've been protected by the power of others. Um, and so that's nice for them, right? Um, but but I, I do think that that is a baseline that we need to remember about, about the Shire. Yeah? One thing about the imperfect people in the Shire is that the Sackville Baggins, for example, with that guy who borrows books and doesn't return them. Yes. Horrible villains, but... <laughs> <laughs> if your super villain is someone who steals silver spoons, <laughs> I mean, that, that's a pretty good place to live. And says rude things and, and tries to offer bad bargain prices for, uh, for valuable items. Yeah, no, exactly. And, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, we'll walk around with an expression that could curdle new milk. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, exactly. Lobelia Sackville Baggins is uh, one of the bad guys in the Shire. And yet, you're right. On the bad guy scale, that's, that's pretty low. <laughs> no, no. No, she doesn't compare really to any villain that, uh, that, that, you, that you sort of think of. Um, but, uh, no, I, I think that... <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's true. It's true. Um, 
Frodo does a really good job uh, of articulating both sides, I think, of the Shire's situation. Um, when he's reflecting on leaving it, this is page 61. He says, I should like to save the Shire if I could, though there have been times when I thought the inhabitants too stupid and dull for words and have felt that an earthquake or an invasion of dragons might be good for them. But I don't feel like that now. I feel as long as the Shire lies behind, safe and comfortable, I shall find wandering more bearable. I shall know that somewhere there is a firm foothold, even if my feet cannot stand there again. Now, what do we see here? Tell me what's important about that passage. Is that he, um, Proto is able to use the Shire and the idea of a Shire as a springboard to motivate him to sort of improve the circumstances of everybody. Yeah. He... His relationship with it is good, in part because he's not just looking inward. He's going from there outwards, right? And that shows a really, a really good, a really constructive relationship with that. It gives him strength, but strength not just to keep minding his own business and his own stuff, um, but to go out and serve others besides himself. Yeah, Aaron? Also, because um, we were comparing his journey to Bilbo's last time, and that saying, um, his feet might not stand there again, and he's, he sounds almost like he he's, knows he might have to sacrifice his life or something yeah. for the Shire rather than hoping to return home as Bilbo did. Yeah, um, and he, Frodo emphasizes that explicitly. His is not going to be a there and back again journey. It's just an away journey as far as he can see, right? So yeah, this is clearly in Frodo's mind from the beginning an act of self-sacrifice, that he is going to give up the Shire in, 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 in an attempt to save it because he knows that it's the only way that it could be saved. If he stays there, he's going to draw the evil into it. Um, but notice how also at the beginning he recognizes there are some ways in which that would be a good thing for the Shire. A little suffering uh, might actually create a, 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 a positive change in perspective for Hobbit society in general. As the two towers were close, the burn hand teaches best. The burn hand teaches best, yeah. There are some lessons that they clearly need to learn. There are some things that they're taking for granted. um, There is some ignorance, Eric, as you were suggesting, that might perhaps best be remedied. But, nevertheless, he doesn't... He swears that, I, I, I don't feel that way now. I, I don't want evil to come to the Shire. Even if he leaves the Shire behind, safe and comfortable, and just as ignorant and just as naive and just as inwardly focused as it was, and full of people like Ted Sandyman who are, who are unwilling to, to even believe in the existence of great things outside the Shire, um, you know, who, who choose skepticism, Um, and choose to disregard other things, even knowing it's full of people like that. Um, That's okay. Rather, better that than than have it it destroyed, than have it actually wrecked. Um, And that's that's, that's a really important moment. That's a really important decision. Of course, we've seen before um, in discussing the Silmarillion that self-sacrifice usually a good thing, right? When, you're, when you, are, you are making the choice to give something up for the sake of other people, that normally works out well. Not necessarily for the person doing it, but it's, no, it's almost always the right thing to do. Josh? You pretty much took the words out of my mouth. What I was just going to say is like, it's like an act of grace. Yeah. Basically. And it's his reason that you know, all of what he does will not be in you know, Bilbo thinks of eggs and bacon to kind of give him comfort. He's got a uh, sort of a foundation of, like, this good life that he already lived. Yeah. And now he's kind of you know, giving back, I guess. Yeah. No, I, I mean, that's, I think, a really neat way to talk about it. I mean, it seems, sort of sounds a little funny to think of, like, Frodo showing grace to the whole rest of the Shire. It seems a little bit aggrandizing, but, but I think that's right. What he's articulating there is he's not putting conditions on it, right? He's not saying, I'll save the Shire if they'll shape up first. You know, if they, he's not putting conditions on it. Even if it turns out, even if they stay as 
problematic as they, st- as they still are in some way, it's okay. They don't have to earn it. He's going to save them anyway. Um, and I, even though, there, I mean, I mean, as we see, there are many of them who are, who are mocking him while he's doing it, right? Um, just as people who were critical of Bilbo, there are people who are critical of Frodo, too. He doesn't fit in. And he, there are people who will not like him, who will criticize him for the way that he is and for the decisions that he makes. Um, I mean, look at what happened with, uh, after the fact with Bilbo and his journey and how that changed people's perception of him. So, um, so yeah, he's, he's but, but that's okay. They don't, have to, they don't have to do anything <laughs> to earn it. It is, in that sense, an act of grace. I think it's a really neat way to think about it. Um, I want to talk about, we didn't, I think we went through the entire class last time without talking about the ring pretty much at all, which we really can't continue to do. So I want to, I want to turn and talk about the ring here a little bit. Bilbo's magic ring? Yeah, the Bilbo's magic ring, you may remember that. Uh, Isn't it like one of them? <laughs> well, there are several, it turns out, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. Special one. It is, it is, it is, turns out, actually, it's kind of special. So the... Especially since, you know, as, we're, as I was talking about before when we were talking about The Hobbit, this is the big shift that Tolkien introduces as he's writing his sequel, right? As I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the ring and I'm going to alter it. And I want to look at the ways in which he does that. Um, what's the ring like? What is the nature of the ring? Not historically. We got some background. We know, you know, it's, it's, it's backstory, uh, from the end of the Silmarillion, uh, from the last section of the Silmarillion. But I mean, what we see, what does it do? How does it act? We see, but we both see some things with Bilbo in chapter one, and Gandalf talks about some things in chapter two. Brittany? Um, isn't Bilbo say it's tricky and that it'll randomly slide off the Yes. Uh, and Gandalf emphasizes this very much. The ring has a mind of its own. The ring is an agent. It is not just an object. Um, Bilbo doesn't fully understand this, but Frodo does mention how Bilbo warned him that it will just pop off uh, on its own sometimes, and you have to be careful with it. And Gandalf emphasizes, at the moment, the ring left Gollum on purpose. The ring purposely (laughs) fell off of Gollum's hand because it was sick of, of slumming down under the mountains for century after century after century. It wanted out of the mountains, and it knew Gollum would never leave. And so it went. Um, we have to be a little bit careful. I mean, one possibility that this opens up is for us to be thinking about the ring as if it were a completely full-fledged character, like, you know, as if it has a long-term strategy and, and everything else. And I don't think that's fully justified. Um, but it does certainly seem to... It, it, it makes choices. It performs actions. Um, it's seems, therefore, presumably, to have impulses or something in some way. But I don't think we can safely attribute to it an intellect. Um, So we need to be careful in how far we anthropomorphize the ring. But it is clear that it does act on its own steam. So that is something we need to remember. Go ahead. Kind of almost more like an instinct that was just going outside. It was created by this and then it has this instinct to do things that are on that side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I agree. It's, it's um, in leaving Gollum, it's not, like a, it's not like it's putting into play a long-term plan that it has. It just wants away from Gollum. Um, but, it, but this is an important factor to remember, that the ring is a player, it makes choices, and some of the choices of the ring will have consequences. And we need to remember that there's more going on than just the consequence. It's, it's not just the people who have the ring who make, con- who make choices that have consequences. And, it's not, and the ring's impact on what happens to it is not only in the way that it affects the person who has it. It also sometimes will act completely independently. Good. Carolyn, what were you going to say before about the ring? Um, I thought it kind of embodies greed um, because... It, the ring is kind of acting on its own impulses and then also the greed that it creates in the bearer of it. Yes. Yes. Um, what disturbed Gandalf initially about Bilbo's 
original performance. I mean, this is where you'll notice where Gandalf was talking about the first version of the story that Bilbo told, which contained that weird business about a present, right? And he was worried because he could tell it was a lie. He could tell Bilbo was lying to him, and when he finally cornered Gollum and, and asked Gollum about it, he could tell that Gollum was lying to him. And what bothered him was that they were telling the same lie, or almost exactly the same lie. What was the lie, exactly? That Yes. They're trying to put their claim to ownership of the ring beyond question. And both of them in the same way, by saying it was a present. Right? Gollum with his birthday present thing, it came to him on his birthday, and so he has a right to it. Even though, of course, with Gollum, that is obviously and manifestly untrue. Actually, it didn't even come to him. It came to Deagle. And then he murdered Deagle to get it. So in no way was it actually a birthday present, but he, as Gandalf says, talked himself into that until... Gandalf believes Gollum actually came to believe that himself. And Bilbo goes through a similar process where he initially lies about it to the dwarves and then seems to believe it or really insist upon it. And Gandalf has to almost compel him to come out with the truth and admit that it wasn't a present. But it's just not like also a present to Frodo, though. Like it actually is a present metal while it wasn't to the other people. Yeah. Everyone gets a present on it. Exactly. Well, now, there's one intermediary step that makes that even cooler, right? Gollum's birthday present thing is a bad sign in two ways. Go ahead, Josh. Okay. Well, Gollum begins his transformation into what I mean, as a philologist, I think we should be thinking of Gollum, which is like all nations. I, I mean, I, I guess. Um, I've never been quite sure about the connection between those two words, but, uh, yeah. That's kind of a side point, but, yeah. I mean, Golem starts his new life with the ring, and he actually goes through, like, a, a metamorphosis and does kind of go through a, a rebirth in a way, although it's not, like, a genuine rebirth. Yeah, yeah. Not in the sense of getting a new life or anything, but, yeah. 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 Um, but when... It's, it's pretty... I, I think it's... Not coincidental that um, Bilbo gives up the ring on his birthday, where he is sort of born again and relieved of the burden and begins to start naturally aging and whatnot. So it's sort of like a foil yeah. in the two and how Gollum got it and Bilbo. Yeah, I agree. There are a lot of really important parallels there. Yeah, it's, and it's of course the irony, right? It is like a rebirth for Bilbo. He feels better right away. He's released to die. Right. I mean, the, the consequence of his being released is that he can now get old and actually die, which is a good thing. Huh? He gets a gift by giving up from a Lutheran. Yeah. Well, or he gets to, res- to stop putting off the gift of a Lutheran to him, which, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I believe in Silmarillion, uh, Sauron, when before he was scarred and, you know, took on the that's the name that he adopted when he was deceiving Celebrimbor and the elves uh, uh, of Eregion. Um, he, uh, he called himself the giver of gifts, yeah. yeah. So it is, uh, it, I mean, and it, this is his most special gift. Not that he gave it, uh, but yeah, no, I agree. That is, uh, that is very ironic. Eric? What's the other question? Like, so Gollum, he doesn't age after he's... Because I've seen the movie, he doesn't age. I don't know if that's how it is. Well, his his appearance clearly changes. Um, he, I, mean, I mean, like from when he loses the ring to oh, when he from. Uh, like I'm not so sure if he's supposed to be able to die after that. He would become mortal. Yeah, I mean, what, <laughs> not that the ring gives you exactly immortality to start with. How does Gandalf describe what happens to a mortal who keeps a ring of power? Do you remember the way he talks about that? It's important because it's a kind of a it's a kind of a middle ground. Rachel, I remember describing as him being like pulled thinly. Yeah, um, and I know that Bilbo describes himself as feeling thin. Yeah, feel, he feels thin and stretched, right? Yeah, it says that. Yes, yes. Um, he Gandalf says that when a mortal wears a great ring, he doesn't die but he doesn't grow or gain any more life. 
he merely continues until his until every day is a weariness. Um, he just he just continues. You're given mortals are given uh, are this allotment of life, and it lasts them a certain degree. This actually is a medieval idea, um, which you can see it. You can see that this idea coming through in a couple places in medieval literature. Basically, that I think of the the, the the great metaphor that Chaucer uses at one point, where he he compares a man's life to a huge beer barrel, um, and at birth the tap is opened, and the beer is slowly coming out of the tun uh, throughout the person's life, and then barrel's empty, game over. That's like and that concept of of, of human life as, as this finite thing. You are given a certain quantity of life, and um, I mean, it's, there were some people who would say, from the medieval perspective, if you said of somebody who died young, this person died before his time, a medieval person might say to you, no, he didn't. He died at exactly his time. It just happened that his time was shorter than other people's time. Right? Um, a mortal who wears a great ring still has their... To twist Chaucer's image, they're just watering down the beer. It's there's do, there's not any more beer, but it's like the more liquid keeps flowing out. I think that's just exactly as far as I can strain Chaucer's metaphor there. But uh, do you see what I mean? That's that's the experience that he describes. It's that it's this this discrete quantity of life, but they don't gain any more life when you talk about getting immortality, it seems to imply or suggest this abundance of life, gain, this, 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 this gaining of life. That's what the Numenorians are after, right? In fact, we're told, that, we're told in the Silmarillion that several of the ringwraiths were Numenorians, and that it's not shocking that they fell prey to this particular temptation. Um, but... So yeah, it's... It seems like a gift, never-ending life. Um, but of course, as we've seen, uh, through Numenor especially, going there is actually not itself a gift. It's a refusal of a gift. And that's the gift that Bilbo is going to be able to receive, and presumably Gollum as well. I mean, I, I think there's no question. We will, at the very, very end of the book... They will notice some changes in Gollum. Now, partly that's because he's been starving, and, and I mean, he's in really bad shape for other reasons, too. Um, but he's wearing out, and certainly would wear out. Um, he doesn't drop dead immediately, but, but he certainly will die, um, which he wouldn't have done. He, he'd, he'd eventually have become a wraith. It's taken him a heck of a long time to become a wraith. As Gandalf points out, that's because he was something like a hobbit to start with, and hobbits are really tough. Dwarves don't fade at all. Um, of, the, of the great rings, Sauron gave out the nine rings and ensnared men. They became wraiths comparatively quickly and under his control. The elves, they did their own rings, and they were their own thing. The dwarves, the seven rings, were made by Sauron too. Um, but the seven rings were a failure, in fact, the reason Sauron has been pursuing them, and he's collected this, you know, some of them he's gotten back and the others the dragons have consumed, that's a recall order by Sauron. He was disappointed by the seven rings because he wanted to make dwarf wraiths too. Just like he ensnared men, he wanted, you know, these, these, these servants among the dwarves to help him with the dwarves. But the dwarves, you may remember, were made by Aule tough and mo- most of all to resist the domination of other things. So it didn't work. It didn't work. It corrupts them in certain ways. Um, it makes them more greedy and more vengeful than they are already. But in the end, they got some good things from the rings as well. So Sauron recalls them because they're just not doing... They're not, although some bad stuff came from them, uh, it, it did not work out. So that's why he pursues the, the, the seven rings. Yeah. That reminds me of a phrase which is a ways off. It's in the appendices, but... I think it's Thrain saying you need gold to breed gold. Yeah. And he's a viewer flying to the ring. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and that the, the main thing that the, that the rings, the seven rings did give to the dwarves is all, every dwarf who had one of the seven rings got very, very rich. I mean, it, it helped them to build the great dwarf treasures of old. Um, Moria was, you know, which we will see, 
they had one of the rings uh, there, and it's one of the things that helped them establish their kingdom. Um, but anyway, okay, so back to the... I'll come back to you in a second. This, one other thing that I wanted to say, though, before we leave the, the birthday present thing too far behind, um, because, Eric, I want to come back to the point that you made about Frodo receiving the ring on his birthday, um, which is really important. I think there, there are a couple reasons why Gollum's description of the ring as his birthday present are... It, it, why that description is pretty sketchy, right? I mean, first, be because it's a lie and it's something he murdered somebody for, which really kind of disqualifies it. Deagle definitively did not give it to him for his birthday. In fact, pointedly refused, and that's why he throttled him. But, but even besides that, there's already a problem with this to begin with, isn't there? Weren't they like hobbits? And in which case? Yes. You don't get presents for your birthday. You give away presents on your birthday. Right? So... This is a whole. Now, I'm not saying that that particular cultural idiosyncrasy of the Shire is one which would have been operative and mandated uh, for for Smeagol and Deagle's society. But as a dynamic, it shows Gollum from the beginning as as grasping and acquisitive. That is the spirit in which he acquired the ring. Bilbo's giving away of the ring on his birthday. The ring, you know, Bilbo calls the ring a present. Um, and Gandalf is concerned because the lies are so similar, because this is making Bilbo like Gollum. In the end, Bilbo completely reverses Gollum and gives away the ring as a birthday present, which, of course, puts Frodo in an ironic position. For Frodo, the lie, which was disturbingly similar between Gollum and, and Bilbo, it's true for Frodo. It was his birthday present given to him from Bilbo on Bilbo's birthday, which happens also to be his birthday. Um, So that's, uh, you know, Gandalf insists that the circumstances of Bilbo's beginning and ending of his ownership of the ring were very important for Bilbo um, in protecting him from the influence of the ring and clearly, the implication is the same for Frodo, that he has begun his ownership of the ring in really a completely unprecedented way. Every single time gift-giving or presence has been associated with the ring, it's been a lie, all the way back, Josh, as you point out, all the way back to Aragian in the Second Age, where Sauron calls himself the giver of gifts. Now, for the first time ever, it's true. No one's ever given this thing as a gift before. And that's kind of amazing, and goes hand-in-hand, therefore, with Frodo's attitude of, I'm going to sacrifice myself for the Shire. Right? Eric? The fact that he actually received it as a present without getting the seat involved, is that one of the reasons that sort of aids in his, or, uh, his ability to withstand the corruption of the ring? Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. What, what is the thing that Gandalf says protected Bilbo most? That he... Um, he had pity on Gollum, basically, and because he started his ownership with pity, I guess the corruptive effects were dampened in that sort of way. And then, comparatively, if you look at Gollum, he uh, committed first-degree murder. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, second-degree. He didn't premeditate, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but yes, exactly, exactly. Good. Yeah, he... The spirit in which they're ownerships begin are completely opposite, completely opposite. And that pity is the thing that Gandalf emphasizes. To have pity, to have sympathy for another person. Um, To be thinking not of yourself, but of somebody else is the really important thing. And again, the the mirror opposite of of what Gollum did. Frodo is in this moment replicating that. It's not the moment when he first receives the ring, though it is the moment when he first realizes what the heck it is. And in that moment, he begins his sort of official ring career, his self-conscious ring career, with pity as well. Pity for the whole Shire. And with an even more, uh, with, with something even more self-sacrificial. Bilbo had pity, which led him to a leap in the dark, literally. 
over Gollum's head. Um, and it would, uh, leap in the dark is the phrase that Tolkien uses to describe it. Frodo is taking a leap in the dark too, or as he would describe, a leap into the darkness. Um, and it's a bigger leap, even, than Bilbo was making. Yeah. We come with still the name um, of the Wings of Power in the Third Age, right? Because that's something I think might be brought up too. We will cover which? Isildur. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So on, so on owes me. Yes, I have a right to this, and by by law he's right. I mean, Weregild. It's a it's a good old Anglo-Saxon word. Uh, the Weregild is the money that you pay when you kill somebody. Uh, I mean, if you kill someone in battle or combat or whatever, you know, you get in a fight and you murder, you, you, you kill someone, you pay their relatives a wear guilt. This keeps them from coming to kill you in vengeance. <laughs> That's the theory here of the wear guilt. Um, so, Isildur... He didn't kill someone because he received the ring. Exactly. Well, in exchange, yeah, he... In exchange for keeping the ring, he didn't destroy it. He killed someone. He, now, I don't think he's thinking in exactly that way, like, I'm going to spare Sauron. But yeah, when he has the ring, he's like, my father and brother have just been killed. I will keep this as wear guilt for them from Sauron. Sauron owes me because of killing my father and my brother. And so therefore, I'm going to keep this ring. Um, and again, this, you can see, you know, one could say of Isildur as well as of, Frodo, as of, of Bilbo and Gollum that, that's a similar lie, too. He's fooling himself. He just wants it for himself. He doesn't want to get rid of it. But he is, like Gollum and like Bilbo, trying to put his claim to the ring beyond dispute. I have a right to this. Because it was my birthday and I should have gotten it as a present. Because it was given to me as a present. Because my father and brother were killed and I was owed this. Right? All of them are going in the same direction. Um, and... You can see how pity serves as the great counteractive to this. Because all of those things are completely self-oriented, completely self-focused. I want it for myself, and I want to justify my ownership of it. Um, As opposed to, I'm going to think about others. I'm going to put others' needs and others' lives before my own. Um, looking over my notes here to see if there was something else I wanted to say that we didn't say yet. Um, One last thing about the ring. Have you noticed when it has operated on Frodo so far? We have seen it act on him already. Did you notice the times it did, Eric? Was it when the the Black Riders come by and he starts reaching for his pocket? Yeah, yeah. Why? why Why is he doing that? And the, 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 the simple reason is that, you know, it's a good time, it would be a good time to be able to disappear. Yeah. But it's also... Wouldn't that be handy right about that? The evil is just right there leaning over you and its influence is strongest. Yeah, yeah. He is more susceptible to the ring when he's near them. Though, another thing to keep in mind... Okay, this is a side note, but I'll say it anyway. The ring rates are also vulnerable. Um, Gandalf has said somewhat cryptically there is power of a kind too in the Shire Um, no crap he hasn't said that yet he'll say it later (laughs) damn it (laughs) this is is, ah well anyway they will it will be said so and this is something to remember one question that sometimes people come away from the books with and which I would add clearly the film screenplay writers came away from the books with. Some of the changes that they make you can see are clearly in this direction, that when you look at the plot of the book, there are some things which don't seem to make sense. That is, if the Black Riders are the ringwraiths, these, as we will see later on, these you know, huge, like the chief servants of Sauron, like kind of like Balrogs, but not quite that powerful. I mean, they're really powerful. Why are they mucking around in the Shire? Like, why are they failing? What, why, I, how are they not succeeding in finding, Bill, in finding Frodo? And I, I mean, this, there's this line that Mary 
says uh, in a conspiracy on masks, which always makes me laugh when Frodo is saying, okay, how long, how much time do we have? You know, how long do you think they could be here? And Mary's like, oh, well, if they came up to the gates at night, I don't think they would let them in. Um, And then he says, you know, but of course, uh, uh, Buckland can't withstand a determined assault for long. And I'm like, oh, you think? I mean, okay, yeah. Is is he going to be able to withstand an assault at all of any kind? I mean, that seems ridiculous. And so... What? They can stoop with stones. Yeah, they are really good shots with rocks. So, yeah, I guess that would possibly factor in. (laughs) But, no, I mean, exactly. It's, It's crazy to think of how on earth... Could there be any resistance? Uh, I mean, why don't the Black Riders just go across the land? I mean, couldn't the nine of them come together and say, okay, we don't know where, like, this Baggins dude is, so I have an idea. Let's slaughter every single living hobbit in the Shire and search their bodies and see if we can find the ring that way. I mean, presumably, they could do that. I mean, they're sufficiently powerful to do that. (laughs) Sorry, Kelly. But... um, Nevertheless, they keep flailing around. It doesn't work. They are limited. Um, We'll see this at Weathertop, too. They fail for good reasons. They actually can't do that. They are weaker here. There is power in the Shire. Um, And they are having a hard time um, because they they are not comfortable where they are. The Shire makes it difficult for them in ways which are not visible, which are not explicit, and which are not clear, but which are emphasized at several places. Their friendship with and proximity with the elves is part of it. As we see, one of the things, of course, that saves them that one time is Gildor and his friends just happening, uh, by chance, as it's called, uh, to come by at that time. I mean, another instance is Tom Bombadil, who's pretty clearly um, one of the Ainu, by his singing and such, um, just... Is, has some, some deep respect for fun with maggot. Yeah. And he's like, this guy's really wise and awesome, and I yeah. respect the dude. Yeah. I mean, if, if fun with maggot has the respect of an Ainu, it's compelling the shot. Yeah, yeah. No, Farmer Maggot's the man, it turns out. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. That That's... There is definitely power in the Shire, even though it doesn't seem like, even though it's not obvious. And we just, we just sort of keep that in mind. But... As I said, that was a side note. What I was talking about that led me to that side note was Frodo's temptation to put on the ring. Yes. There's one that I can't place, and that's the one that, because I know I get the wraiths one. The one that he puts on when he's singing in the Prancing Pony. Yeah. He disappears and he's singing to himself, and he says, well, I don't know why that happened. I didn't even want to put on the ring. Well, keep in mind, this is where we need to remember. So that's in Friday's reading, not today's reading but <laughs> but anyway uh, I mean if I do it all the time I guess I shouldn't yell at you but um, this is where we need to come back to the point that Brittany was making before right one thing that's happening is the ring is trying to act the ring is is sub, is putting Frodo through this temptation because it wants to be found I mean, this is like, you know, the, Frodo being suddenly gripped with this desire, I must put on the ring, I must put on the ring, is at least in part the ring itself, you know, doing what it can do to, you know, wave its non-existent arms and say, I'm over here, guys, I'm over here. I mean, that's one of the things that's happening there. So, I was going to say, it, so it does, like, sense that the ring rights are closed, and if it gets put on now, it's going to be that. It seems to be. I mean, I, I, I think... It's hard not to come to that conclusion, seeing the way in which Frodo keeps doing that. And also, what, Eric, you wanted to say something, too? Well, yeah, I just had a question about, like, the, like, the first time when he's hiding from it. Yeah. And he's uh, on page 7 the floor, but like, I'm still in the shower. He's about his hand touch the chain on which it hung. At that moment, he writes many, many leaves. Yes. So it's almost like at when his desire to put on the ring makes it go away, and how is really confused at that and why that or at least that's how he, how he makes it seem as if, like, at the closest moment that the ring's going to go on, that makes the rider almost leave? Or if it's just luck that he leaves at that moment? The latter, I think. The latter, I think. That what, what happens the first... There are two times when this happens, right? The first time it happens, Frodo is just about to give in. But by coincidence, right, like, a second before he was going to give in is the moment that the rider gives up and moves on. 
And the second time, he comes even closer, and the rider is coming towards him, and it's the coincidence of the elves coming in. So I, I think it's two examples, and in fact, escalating examples, of being saved by pure luck, as we would have said in The Hobbit. Right? So yeah, I, I do think that that's what, what, what's operative. But look at the tone of that. That's exactly the passage that I wanted to, to look at. It starts in the bottom of 73. A sudden unreasoning fear of discovery laid hold of Frodo, and he thought of his ring. He hardly dared to breathe, and yet the desire to get it out of his pocket became so strong that he began slowly to move his hand. He felt that he had only to slip it on, and then he would be safe. The advice of Gandalf seemed absurd. Bilbo had used the ring, and I am still in the Shire, he thought, as his hand touched the chain on which it hung. And then at that moment, the rider sat up and shook the reins and leaps, fortunately. What I want to point out here, because this is a trend we'll see throughout about the ring. The ring doesn't just work on your desires. It doesn't just kind of give irrational impulses. Notice the high level of rationalization going on here, right? He thinks of his ring first, and then he imagines himself slipping it on and being safe, and then all of these arguments in support of that immediately come flooding into his mind. The advice of Gandalf seemed absurd. Bilbo had used the ring, and I am still in the Shire. We will see the ring induce that kind of rationalization a lot. Um, and it's, 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 it's an important thing to remember about the ring. Sometimes we, you know, the ring is associated with desire so often. The desire for the ring, which will, for which Tolkien will sometimes use the word lust, even, uh, to describe the, the, the strength of that desire. Um, but so we can often sort of just think about that of, 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 of this, you know, desires and feelings that the ring induces, but it's not just feelings. It gets in their heads and actually argues with them or not even with them through them in them. Yeah. Yeah. Kelly. Um, would the opposite of that sort of rationalization be the faith that, Frodo should have in Gandalf, because when Gandalf says, under no circumstances should you ever put on this ring, you should sort of trust that there is never going to be a situation where it would be a good idea to put on the ring? Yes. Yes. And here, I mean, it's uh, hard not to go back to Bilbo's leap in the dark. Um, So yes, with a proviso. Mm -hmm. That is that faith or trust, in that sense, is not... Uh, put in conflict with reason, rationalization. It's not that the ring uses reason or is connected with... The argument of the ring is flawed. It's not reason, it's rationalization. I am trying to think of ways to justify my own desire, is what the ring does with you. Um, It is not, I am being presented with a convincing rational argument which I am going to oppose in blind faith. Um, so I'm agreeing with you, but just sort of clarifying because it's, it would be easy to create a false reason-faith dichotomy here. Um, and that's, I think, what well, that's both, I think, untrue to the book um, and also faith-reason dichotomies are one of my personal pet peeves. But, uh, but in addition to that, I, I do think it's genuinely untrue to the book as well. Eric? I just found it interesting how the rationalization works. And how it works inversely as well, like Gandalf can't forcibly take a deep. He has to have Bilbo rationally make the decision to give up the ring and Frodo rationally to make the decision to take the ring upon you. Now the ring makes one rationalize to make the evil decision. So there are like inverse actions which are funny. Yeah, I agree. That's a really important thing. It's um, Gandalf does talk Bilbo into giving up the ring. And you can see, you can hear, in, in, once you identify that tone that the ring uses internally, that, that series of rationalizations, you can hear it lots of places. Go back and read again what Bilbo says to Gandalf when he's not giving up the ring, and it sounds a lot like that. It sounds a lot like that. And Gandalf is opposing that with other reasons. Though, again, to come back, Kelly, to the point that you're making, 
The bottom line reason that Gandalf gives him is, I wish you'd trust me as you used to. Right? Um, so clearly, trust and faith is definitely operative against that kind of rationalization. But I agree with you, Eric, that there is counter, like, good reason <laughs> against the, 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 the false rationalization. Yeah. Good, good. Well, we should stop. I, I, uh, I, I was hoping to get to the conspiracy, but we'll... <laughs> I <laughs> wasn't trying to guilt you into staying, uh, but uh, we won't do the. We'll 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 start with it with, with a conspiracy next time, and then move on to Tom Bombadil. But thank you very much for coming. <laughs> you can go now. It's okay. <laughs> okay. For the next class, we'll work through chapters seven through ten, and we'll think about Hobbit conspiracies, the Prancing Pony, and of course Tom Bombadil. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.